Welcome once more unto the breach, dear friends. It's Andy Roberts, your most reviled podcast host, badgering you yet again with more squalid details of nasty, grungy little movies that most reasonable people wouldn't touch with a surgically gloved hand. This is the Nasty Pasty Podcast, named aptly so because pasties are British, and so are the nasties, the term used to describe horror or exploitative movies released on VHS during the 80s, which irked the authorities to say the least. In a manner that would make Nazi Germany and Satanic Panic America proud, the newspapers spread word of a video contagion in the country that our children were accessing violence on film in an almost pornographically prurient fashion. Scared that our chavvies would revolt and reenact Lord of the Flies on good old Blighty, the government instructed the police forces to seize the foul, depraved titles from our shelves, where they were first put on trial and then burned en masse if found guilty. Yes, it did happen. Yes, it was daft. No, it shouldn't have happened. No, no one was held accountable for it. As there was no punishment, except for innocent video dealers who were simply trying to sell movies, I've undertaken a mission to ensure that the stupidity of this period of time is never forgotten. Instead of focusing on the nasties themselves, as they frequently stay in the limelight, I'm covering movies that were on the shelves at the same time, but they didn't make it onto the list of forbidden fruits. We've already covered a huge range of these slightly more underrated pieces of fruit, and we're going to play Adam and Steve just a little bit longer with today's episode, continuing our Women in Prison theme. Earlier, we covered two Women in Prison pictures, though it was a two-for-the-price-of-one scenario. This time, it's just plain old Women in Prison, though a slightly more outrageous and rancid variety. Our two films this week, like last time, are from Video Nasty Directors, Bruno Mattai, of zombie creeping flesh fame, gives us violence in a women's prison, while Jess Franco, who featured last time, returns with Sadomania. We covered the genre extensively on our previous episode too, so we're just going to dive straight into the first entry, Violence in a Women's Prison.
En route to the Santa Catarina Women's Penitentiary, a small van transporting prisoners is interrupted by the ad hoc addition of a young woman from two uniformed police officers. The small group of girls, imprisoned due to prostitution and drug-related offences, is then received by a gaggle of sadistic-looking female guards, led by Resco, and shipped off to the warden for inspection. The latecomer is identified as Laura Kendall, apparently a prostitute with a penchant for drug pushing, and she's sent to the prison doctor, a man called Moran, for a checkup. whilst the rest of the group are taken to their cells. One of them, called Kitty, seems to be a returning figure who reunites with a butch prisoner, Hertha, who's looking after a younger prisoner called Malone. As her medical exam concludes, Laura notices that the doctor is himself a prisoner, just before that she's seconded to her cell with an elderly prisoner called Pilar, who nurses a cockroach in a matchstick cage. Dr Moran is talked to by the warden, who seductively infers that he was breaking rocks in his own prison until her interference, while Malone is teased by the guards, who eat her chocolate food parcel sent in by her mother in front of her. Moran is then dispatched to the male half of the prison to tend to a frail gay man called Leander, who seems to be regularly sexually assaulted by the others. A fight soon breaks out in the male exercise yard, causing a brawl between the guards and the prisoners. Later that night, it becomes apparent that Malone is being pimped out by Hertha to the main guard Resco, who Lem watches as the pair grope each other. Suddenly, as Resco begins to almost climax at the sight of them, she viciously begins to bludgeon them with her truncheon, though she appears to let them off lightly the next morning when they are clearly injured. Laura is treated kindly by Pilar, who warns her about Hertha, who is apparently a spy for the warden, but that does little to lift her mood when she's given work detail of cleaning the floors and disposing of a large pot of faeces. In defiance, Laura throws the faeces over the two guards who gave it to her and a fight ensues as they writhe around in the poo and beat each other with truncheons. Resco intervenes and Laura is thrown into solitary confinement. Kitty and Hertha fight over the injuries that Malone sustained, only to have the guards suddenly burst in and take Consuelo, another one of their cellmates. In her cell, Laura is suddenly swarmed by many rats who've surrounded her and begin to horribly feast on her legs, whilst Consuelo is lured to the warden's office under the pretext of meeting her, only for two of the male prisoners from next door to enter and rape her, all the while peeped on by the warden, who's having sex with the chief inspector, who watches over the male half of the camp. Sensing that Laura's injuries are very serious, Pilar pretends to be ill in order to force the guards to summon a doctor, while the warden is reluctant to do so, Moran arrives and has Laura sent to the infirmary to heal her wounds. As she recovers, Moran explains that he was put in prison for euthanizing his sick wife, who was terminally ill from cancer. The next day, some of the male prisoners shine a mirror at Hertha's cell, prompting Malone to do a striptease to appease the large crowd of onlookers. After being whipped into a sexual frenzy, and since Leander is present, the men assault and brutalise him, enough to cause him to die in Moran's arms. When Moran refuses to sign a doctor death certificate, the warden threatens to take it out on Laura unless she, he conforms to her demands. So in exchange, he makes love to her. The next day, the whole group of female prisoners are put on manual labour, when Pilar shown signs of struggle. After hearing Laura offer to help her, Hertha mocks the pair, which causes Consuelo to attack her. The fight ends up on a precipice where Consuelo falls to her death, causing Kitty to crumble in despair. 
The chief inspector then visits the warden with a tip that a reporter has infiltrated the prison disguised as a female prisoner to report on the depravity and mistreatment within to an external body. On warning from Herfer, the warden soon discovers that Laura keeps a diary under her mattress and then brutally interrogates her about the reasoning behind it. After several tortures, Laura confesses to actually being a reporter called Emmanuel, who is reporting to Amnesty International about the conditions inside the prison. In response to this, Resco is ordered to keep Laura drugged in her cell, which attracts the attention of Pilar and Dr Moran. Moran quietly informs Laura on a visit about the drugs so that she can avoid being poisoned, though it does not prevent the chief inspector from arriving and raping her that night. A plan is hatched by the elderly Pilar to overthrow the guards in response to Emmanuel's treatment, whilst in the mess hall later the next day, Hertha and all the guards are ambushed by the female prisoners and brutally beaten, with Hertha dying from her injuries. Kitty breaks Emmanuel out of her cell, and Moran escorts her out of the prison using a rope to rappel down the prison's walls. When Resco, the chief inspector, and some of his guards happen upon the scene of carnage in the mess hall, the men wrest control from the prisoners, while Resco sends them all to solitary. Confronting Pilar, Resco receives a slap from the old woman, and shoots her dead in response. While she's distracted, Malone takes a spoon shiv and stabs Resco to death with it. Moran and Emmanuel hide in a barn to rest from their journey, and they end up making love. The warden, however, has discovered that both the doctor and Emmanuel have escaped, and dispatched some of the inspector's men and sniffer dogs to seek them out. Unfortunately, the pair are caught by the search team and return to the prison, where instead of being punished, they're treated to the sight of the chief inspector and the warden in handcuffs, with Emmanuel's editor in the office to free the pair, ending the film. Another collection of Madonna lilies to plant in our garden. Pity they need to grow in dung and filth. Let's go. I hope you're not going to cause trouble in here. No one would suspect you had such a record to look at you. Laura Kendall, age 26. Prostitute by profession. Pusher of drugs. Attempted homicide. I had every reason to kill him. He was a pimp. How about the bit on drug pushing? Did you push the stuff or not? Yes or no? Reply to the question when addressed. Yes. Yes, Yes, Your Honor. Yes, and say Head Warden. Yes, sorry, Head Warden. You may go. Hi, Kitty. Welcome home. <laughs> Hi, babe. How was it outside? Hey. Couldn't wait to get back in, huh? <laughs> hmm. Hello, Kitty. Remember me? Joe. Now we've got Kitty back. Up Things yours. will get hotter again Stop right it. here. Stop it at once. What's going on in the outside world? Silence! I won't have any more of this confusion. Shut up! Well, it's not often in a film that you can boast that you've seen women rolling around in literal shit having a catfight, is it? Bruno Mattei's take on women in prison flicks is nothing short of the sleazy, oversexed, grotty piece that you'd expect it to be. 
though it does surprise with, dare I say it, actually relatively decent filming, editing and locations. The film actually would have made a good candidate for my previous episode, as this is another film which was filmed back-to-back with a near-identical movie, namely 1983's Women's Prison Massacre, which used the same cast, crew and locations, but fashioned a different story altogether. On a mere budget of supposedly $67,000, Matai gives us technically another entry into the Black Emmanuel series. When we covered Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals way back when in 2017, we briefly covered the Black Emmanuel series, but I don't think we went into anything further other than talking about Laura Gemser. The original Emmanuel film, spelled with two M's, was a French softcore pornographic film about a young woman who goes to Bangkok to enhance her sex life, released in 1974. It didn't win many awards due to its risque content, but it did spawn an entire subgenre of sexploitation. The original French film had six direct sequels, simply numbered Emmanuel 2, 3, 4, etc., all the way up to number 7, which came out in 1992. In the late 1970s, the Carry On crew parodied the genre in Carry On Emmanuel, but more relevantly, the Italians came up with a ploy to exploit the series for their own. Choosing a different model in Laura Gemser and removing one of the M's from the title character's name allowed them to bypass any copyright issues and start their own series of sex films, starting with Black Emmanuel in 1975. This first film by Adalberto Albertini was followed by a non-sequel Black Emmanuel 2, which did not feature Laura Gemser, so the mantle was taken by auteur director Joe D'Amato, who dropped the black from the titles and just began carrying on with the Laura Gemser version of Emmanuel in no less than five films. There was Emmanuel in Bangkok, Emmanuel in America, Emmanuel Around the World, Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, and finally Emmanuel and the White Slave Trade, all of them released during the 70s. We're actually covering Emmanuel in America and Emmanuel in Bangkok later in the year, but even outside of these, even films unrelated to Emmanuel were marketed as such simply for the presence of Gemza in a similar role, such as Black Cobra Woman in 1976 being retitled Emmanuel Goes Japanese, or the release of Sister Emmanuel and Black Emmanuel, White Emmanuel. After this, Bruno Mattai squeezed another two films out in the 80s, using Laura Gemser as Emmanuel, but modifying the character slightly. It's not like this was an issue anyway, as Gemser's husband, Gabrielle Tinti, often starred in these films in vastly different roles, so the continuity wasn't really a problem. And one of those is the film that we're covering today. For an entry in the Black Emmanuel series, though, the sexuality is particularly absent from most of Emmanuel's character, who is normally something of a nymphomaniac in the movies. We do get the obligatory scene, though, of her consensually having it off with the Doctor, played by her real-life husband, Gabrielle Tinty. What we tend to get here instead is more of the standard women in prison tropes that we've come to know and love, like battle-axe guards who have a vicious, violent sexual temperament just waiting to be unleashed, Butch lesbian inmates, forced sexual gropings, scrubbing floors, over-the-top manual labour requests, a brutal female warden who has her hair tied back because she's pent up, sexually sadistic staff who get off on watching violent attacks, etc, etc. While all these elements are tried and tested, Matai does throw some new material into the mix, actual faecal matter being one of them. 
In one of the more memorable scenes in the movie, Emmanuel is given a bucket of shit to clean out, but she clearly has issues with being treated so basely. After the guard rebukes her with a hurry-up toilet trash, Emmanuel flings the human excrement over the guards and proceeds to get her claws out and attack the two filth-covered women. While conceptually quite disgusting, it actually just looks ridiculous and very entertaining, even for Resco, who's watching from afar with glee. Until Emmanuel gains the upper hand, of course, and starts beating the guards' asses with their own truncheons. In another memorable scene, Emmanuel is kept in isolation for her shit behaviour, only to be attacked en masse by red-eyed rats who proceed to chomp on her hair and legs. It's not entirely convincing, but it does get under your skin at the same time, mostly due to Gemser's quite genuine reactions, and the music, which is a harbinger of the work that Matai would accomplish in his later movie, Rat's Night of Terror. This scene also showcases one of the only instances of gore in the film, and though it's not utterly gruesome, it's always welcome to see a little bit of Clara in a film like this. Other interesting elements include Pilar, the courageous old biddy with a pet cockroach, though in true Italian style, the insect inside her little cage is in fact clearly a beetle. Johnny Larkin from Twitter is one of the ones who pointed this out to me, and this does seem to be quite a recurring staple in Italian exploitation movies. Another is the fact that literally next door to the women's camp is a male camp, which the chief inspector presides over. Now, it's not that often that these two genders are portrayed next door to each other in these sorts of films, so it does add a bit of extra flavour, especially as the males mostly end up in violent scraps rather than any sexual behaviour. Prison camp is the term of the day, though, and we get our camp prisoner in the form of Leander, a rather svelte ginger gay who would have offended gay men even in the 80s with how stereotypical he's betrayed and dubbed as well. More on his character later, but his presence does add the only sexual element within the male group, namely that he seems to regularly service the men who are frisky and he frequently visits the doctor as they tend to hurt him a little. It all culminates in a strange scene where... All the men except him get turned on by looking at Malone strut her stuff in a window, leading to them all to scramble towards Leander for a quick fumble, only to end up mashing the guy to death as they all bite and scratch to get at his arsehole. Because the two camps are all so close together, it does appear that they share the same building, and though the sets on the film are quite simple, and quite clearly sets as well, they do have that grimy, bleak look that most of Matai's material seems to have. While the film's situations and characters might be silly, you never quite forget that you're in a dungy prison because of the dour locations, which at least deserves some commendation. The story is quite threadbare, merely following our intrepid Emmanuel, who's working for Amnesty International no less, to report on the less-than-savoury punishments and mistreatment of the prisoners in Santa Catarina Women's Penitentiary. It doesn't really develop beyond the guards finding out who she is, trying to keep her from leaving and the Doctor, whom she's slowly fallen for, rescues her, while the requisite revenge is doled out to the guards by the other prisoners. The only flourish, though, that I really liked in terms of the plot, and I thought was pretty clever, was when Emmanuel and Moran are caught by the Warden's guards and returns for what seemed like a fatal punishment. But at the last minute, the Warden and Chief Inspector hold their hands up, revealing that the guards next to them have them handcuffed and under arrest, which is quite a novel way to do it. I was utterly convinced that it was going to be an unhappy ending, but I was proven wrong. With the story being quite weak, we only then really have our characters to experience. A lot of them are your standard cardboard cutouts as well, but you do have a couple of exceptions. 
Our main girl, Emmanuelle, as explained before, seems to be a slightly restrained version of her normal self, rather reluctant to engage in any kind of sexual behaviour. With the exception of Dr. Moran, all of Emmanuel's sexual encounters are non-consensual, as are the majority of the female inmates. She's at least headstrong enough, though, to fling poop at her oppressors and stay quite resilient as she's being gnawed on by flesh-eating rats. But then she gives in to a kind of bizarre torture device involving a large bell contraption which the guards hammer with their truncheons and it causes her to have a nosebleed. Dr. Moran is more of an attempt at characterisation, with him being wrongfully imprisoned for murder when he merely euthanised his suffering wife. Questionable ethics aside, it's more of a contrivance just to get him firmly on the side of the good guys and give him a chance to save the girl. He does, however, bonk the warden too, as she's made it possible for him to take the position as a doctor. She herself is shrouded mostly in mystery, simply being spiteful for the fun of it, though this is hardly anything new when it comes to warden characters. Hertha is the stereotypical butch prisoner, though they've combined the ratty spy character that's normally in these films into hers. So now instead of being merely reprehensible, she's now all sorts of levels of awful. Malone seems to be along just for the ride, and from what I remember, I don't even think she says anything during the whole movie. She just kind of strips off or shivs people on command. Though Kitty and Consuelo are introduced as though they're meant to be important, they have very little impact on the plot, with only Consuelo being present to be raped by the male prisoners, while more accurately used as the parcel in Pass the Parcel, while Kitty is simply there to break Emmanuel from her cell, and look a little upset when Consuelo actually dies. It's all a little bit disappointing then on the character front, but Pilar makes up for this quite well. Being quite caring and cantankerous in equal measure, Pilar seems to be an inspiration for Prisoner Delacroix from Stephen King's The Green Mile, with the cockroach standing in for Mr Jingles. She has a pet cockroach which keeps her going, and it's only when it's killed spitefully by Hertha that she springs into action, helming an operation to spring Emmanuel from jail and attacking the guards and Hertha in revenge for Consuelo's death. She was the only one that I got genuinely kind of gutted about when she died, which is more than I can say for Resco. She's the head of the female guards and the most recognisable, and she has a distinctly Dessardian outlook on sexual activity. In one scene... She watches Hertha and Malone grope each other and she really gets into her arousal until it kind of peaks and she reacts by mercilessly beating them to a pulp with her truncheon. It's an odd reaction, to say the least, but, you know, I guess you live and learn. Finally, there's the aforementioned gay prisoner, Leander, who apart from somehow being more stereotypical than the original stereotype, has a very interesting conflicting viewpoint on his position as the camp bitch. In his initial introduction, he seems to dislike his abuse at the hands of the others, complaining about being in pain and refusing the advances of a particularly greasy thug. Though later, when Malone does her striptease, he suddenly becomes upset at the lack of attention on him, begging the men to stop looking at her because she's a whore and she's only teasing you. He then elaborates, saying that he alone satisfies them and why isn't he good enough anymore? Only for them to suddenly take notice and end up killing him due to their rapacious energy. It's certainly a complicated and conflicting position, where Leander seemingly dislikes his fate as the camp cum dumpster, but he also can't function without this identity and becomes upset at the imbalance caused by Malone. While this thread of thought is actually kind of interesting, it's also much more likely that it was simply contrived just to be as offensive as possible. All in all, this film is rather typical of women in prison movies, 
It throws in enough outrageous elements to distinguish itself from the common rabble that the subgenre can offer, but will ultimately end up being memorable only for a few select moments. As explained when we started, a film truly can be memorable for a few certain scenes involving shit. We're actually covering films involving poop much later in our final episode, but until then, cat fights in clumps of human waste will have to tide you over. Laura Gemser plays the sapphic nymphomaniac reporter, Emmanuel, yet again, though her character of Laura seems to be a little different to the May Jordan character in Joe D'Amato's canon, though I guess like Ilsa, it doesn't really matter about continuity in this case. We've previously seen Gemser in Emmanuel and the Last Cannibals, but one of her little-known roles is that she was the costume designer on Troll 2. Yeah, she made those little demonic goblin masks and burlap sack outfits. Go figure. Her real-life husband, Gabriel Tinti, also features here as Dr Moran. He, of course, is intrinsically tied with Laura Gemser for their relationship, which is the main reason, really, that she actually got into the Italian filmmaking process in the first place. We saw him in Emmanuel on the Last Cannibals as well, way back when in 2017. Gee, has it really been that long? Kitty was played by actress Maria Romano, who'd later pop up in the very similar Women's Prison Massacre from the same director, Matai. Consuelo was played by Ursula Flores, who in the same manner as Romano also appeared in Matai's Women's Prison Massacre. Antonella Giacomini, who played the role of Malone. Yep, you guessed it, she also crops up in Women's Prison Massacre too. Leander was played by Italian actor Franco Caracciolo, who appeared in the video nasty Kill or None, and two giallo films Death Walks at Midnight and The Case of the Scorpion's Tale. Hertha, played by French actress Francois Perrault, did what most of the non-leading women of the film did. She did her work on this, and then returned for Women's Prison Massacre. An exception to the rule is the French actress Lorraine Desselle, who played the role of the female warden. Now, Desselle is rather recognisable in video nasty circles, due to making appearances in two notorious examples, Cannibal Ferox and The House on the Edge of the Park, but she's also been in stuff like Women's Camp 119, uh, she was had an uncredited role in Emmanuel in America, and she later starred in the Animal Attack Italian horror movie Wild Beasts from Franco Prosperi. The Inspector was played by Jacques Stani from films such as Castle of the Living Dead, Cat of Nine Tales, Four Flies on Grey Velvet, etc. etc. After this film, though, he'd later appear in Women's Prison Massacre. Surprise, surprise. And also the post-apocalyptic action film 2019 After the Fall of New York. Another rule-breaker of the female cast was Franca Stoppi, who played Resco. And yes, she did appear later in Women's Prison Massacre. But unlike a lot of the others, she'd been in a cluster of other Italian films, like Joe D'Amato's Beyond the Darkness... George Eastman's Dog Lay Afternoon, and Bruno Mattai's non-sploitation flick The Other Hell. On a trivia note, she was also married to Italian actor Simone Mattioli, who played one of the idiot socialites in Andrea Bianchi's Burial Ground, which we're actually covering next week. Finally, there was the small role of Miguel, who was played by Raul Cabrera, but he also took a leaf from all the ladies' books and simply appeared later in Women's Prison Massacre. We've covered director Bruno Mattai a few times now, having watched Zombie Flesh Eaters 2, Rat's Night of Terror, and Shocking Dark. We know the drill by now. Mattai simply followed the path of many of his Italian contemporaries and made films in genres that were smashing it because of a hit elsewhere in the market. 
Matai's examples, of course, are almost universally awful, but entertainingly so. Matai also did the editing job on this film, while the writer, Claudio Fragasso, is quite familiar too, as he directed Zombie Flesh Eaters 3 and co-directed and wrote a lot of Matai's filmography. Most people would know Fragasso, though, from his infamous Troll 2, which is aptly dubbed the best worst film in the world. The other writer on the project, Ambrogio Molteni, was probably chosen for his experience in the Black Emmanuel series, having worked on the original Black Emmanuel in 1975, then subsequently the new Black Emmanuel, Yellow Emmanuel, and then Sister Emmanuel. There doesn't appear to be any info as to who produced the film, though, which is rather odd, but it may be that Matai funded it himself and just chose not to credit himself. The music was done by Luigi Cecciarelli in his first screen credit. Cecciarelli would continue with Matai on Women's Prison Massacre and Rat's Night of Terror, before moving on to other Italian fare, like Scalps and Andrea Bianchi's Massacre. Cinematographer Luigi Cicciaresi was also a frequent Matai collaborator, working on Women's Camp 119 and Shocking Dark, but he also branched out into stuff like Fulci's Enigma and Fulci's later film Demonia. Matai was assisted on his editing by Gilbert Kikwan, who took over fully for Matai's Women's Prison Massacre and also Rat's Night of Terror. The special effects were done by makeup guy Marcello De Paolo, who also worked on Strip Nude for Your Killer, Papaya Love Goddess of the Cannibals, and Last Cannibal World, which was one of the video nasties. There was also Armando Grilli, who'd worked on Enzo Castellari's Inglorious Bastards. Finally, in a little humorous side note, there's a guy called Bruno Schiavi who's credited with simply drapes in the credits of this film. In fact, most of his other credits on other films are also for drapery and tapestries. I guess he had a real skill in them. While the film has been released as Caged Women, Chicks in Chains, Emmanuel in Hell, Emmanuel Reports from a Women's Prison, and even Women's Penitentiary 4, in almost all forms, the film was not well regarded. It didn't have a cinematic release, and it went straight to video, but even on video it struggled to gain widespread traction in the European market. It didn't even get a pre-certification release in the UK, actually. So the first time that we got it was in 2003 from Vipco, who managed to get an uncut version passed for DVD release. It hasn't really popped up since, to my knowledge, so you can get either hold of this the Vipco way, or by importing DVD or Blu-ray versions from overseas. And yes, this does have a Blu-ray restoration, strangely. So that was our first film. Now on to our next film of the week, Sadomania. White Hacienda, rehabilitation camp for delinquent women, no trespassing. (laughs) 
Newly married couple Olga and Michael are driving through the desert and pass by a sign detailing the nearby proximity of White Hacienda, a rehabilitation centre for delinquent women. Despite it saying no trespassing, the couple go past it in order to play hooky and find themselves held at gunpoint by several women and arrested. Brought in front of the camp's warden, Magda, she condemns Olga to prison time and has Michael ejected from the property, never to return. As all of the women are performing manual labour outside, Magda receives a visit from Governor Mendoza, who seemingly randomly selects a prisoner to have for the night regularly. His latest choice, a French girl, decides to make a run for it instead of complying, but is lassoed by the guards on horseback and caged. Now put off, the governor instead leaves her to Magda's sadistic games. She's prodded with Magda's whip until she's whipped into a frenzy and kept in the cage for a long time, prompting Olga to state her desire for Magda's death. Mendoza and Magda then play one final game of letting the French girl free and then individually hunting her down with rifles. Chasing her into the swamp waters only attracts crocodiles, which causes her to lose her concentration enough to get shot at by Mendoza, killing her and allowing the crocs to devour her corpse. Olga's cellmate Tara has a flashback of her arrest, where she was detained for drug trafficking despite only smoking a joint. She's suddenly seized by two guards and taken to Mendoza's home, where his wife Loba allows her to freshen up and pamper herself. She then strips the young girl and begins to seduce her, while Mendoza watches. Eventually, Loba allows him to have sex with her himself, though he has a sexual problem and cannot maintain an erection, leaving him in frustration. While Olga is seduced by her lesbian cellmate Miriam, Tara is sold to a man called Mario and his band of sailors as a prostitute by Loba. One of the prisoners, called Mercedes, gets into a fight with a guard called Juna, and they end up tussling in the sands whilst the other girls watch and bait them. As punishment, Magda uses a pin to stab Mercedes in the breast, and then offers to settle their differences by allowing them to fight in supervised combat, with the victor being pardoned. Mercedes is successful and stabs Juna in the stomach, winning the fight and earning Mendoza a win on a bet with Magda. He gets to have Mercedes for the night, allowing Loba to chain her to a chair and letting a rampant dog rape her as she's restrained. Mendoza, whilst watching the spectacle, is finally able to become aroused and he makes love successfully to Loba. Michael returns with a friend to try and bust into the prison to rescue his wife Olga, but his friend is shot dead and Michael is captured. In front of a naked Magda, the guards strip him naked and fondle him to humiliate him. She then takes the initiative and seduces him, and the pair screw as the guards watch. After they've finished, the guards take Michael towards a cell, but he manages to knock them unconscious and searches the cells for Olga. Finding her, Michael and Olga decide to rescue Mercedes from the governor's clutches in order to find out where Tara is. Loba, however, sells her into prostitution, just like Tara, and Mario takes advantage of her while she's chained up. Managing to fool him into untying her arms... Mercedes snatches Mario's gun and holds him hostage, only for him to suddenly bat it out of her hand, and he rapes her. Back on shore, Mario sells her to a gay man called Lucas, who runs a brothel on the docks, where she locates Tara. Back at the prison, Magda seduces one of Olga's old cellmates in a bid to find out where she escaped, while at the brothel, Mercedes tries to heal Tara, who is suffering from infection after one of her customers bit her in the breast. 
She unfortunately succumbs to her injuries and dies, just as Olga and Michael reach the docks themselves. Heading towards the brothel, they encounter Lucas having sex with his lover and lure him outside to hold him at gunpoint. They force him to rescue Mercedes from her captivity and the trio then escape back to Mendoza's mansion with revenge on their minds. Heading into Mendoza and Loba's bedroom where they're sleeping, Michael shoots Mendoza dead and takes Loba hostage, driving her to Magda's prison where they force her to gain them access past the guards. As they get inside, Loba tries to run away, but Michael shoots her dead. Mercedes frees all the prisoners, whilst Olga tries to shoot Magda, only for her to flee. Cornered while trying to get in the car, Magda is taken hostage by Olga and Mercedes, and let loose in the swamps. The film ends as crocodiles begin to swarm towards her. You are trespassing on private property. Are you kidding? This area is public property. Silence! You shut up, I'm not talking to you. Of course this is private property. The Hacienda Blanca is a prison. It's not for you men, it's a woman's camp. And who are you, may I ask? I am Magda Olato, the directress of this camp. And you, according to your identification, are Mrs. Olga Gordon, wife of Michael. Newlyweds on their honeymoon. <laughs> I find that utterly charming. I'm afraid the honeymoon is over. What do you mean by that? You will remain here, Olga, without your husband. You can't. Silence. Talk out of turn again and you'll be shot. Who knows, Olga? You might like it here. At any rate, you will remain here. And Michael? What's going to happen to him? He's free. He is to leave the country immediately. Not without Olga? Yes, without Olga. You will do as you're told. You have nothing to say. It is my decision. Take him away. No! Coming from prolific Spanish director Jess Franco, Sadomania is another snab at the women in prison genre from pretty much the progenitor of the movement with his 1969 movie, 99 Women. Probably due to the time period between these two examples, Sadomania is a much more different animal and stoops to new levels of debauchery as a result. At this stage in 1981, women in prison was becoming a little more fizzled out, so any new examples were having to tread new ground in order to stay relevant or even interesting. Of course, Franco would have no trouble. The action starts with a married couple trespassing on the property of Magda, our sadistic prison warden of Hacienda Blanca, a reformative camp for women prisoners. It's the fairly standard setup for such nonsense, of course, but even for exploitation movie standards, the camp is just plain weird. It's out in the middle of nowhere, yes, but I guarantee that the place would be under some sort of governmental jurisdiction, so why a place like this is able to freely abuse the prisoners and allow instant incarceration for trespassers is ridiculous. Not only that, but a prison camp which only enforces mandatory wearing of daisy dukes and nothing else is really bizarre. Nothing really new for women in prison flicks either to have some flesh on show, but this is one notable case of which I actually forgot that the women were naked after a while because you become so blind to the fact that they're all topless. It's pretty much relentless too, taking up at least 90% of the film's runtime. So while the target audience clearly excludes someone like me, 
I can imagine even heterosexual men getting a little bored of the constant shoving a boob into the camera. Despite Franco's expected attention to the bare female flesh in the film and his characteristic zooms, the camera also captures some really quite beautiful shots of the locations in some surprisingly stunning compositions. The screenplay also throws in quite a few elements that spice up proceedings in a way that's beyond what you'd normally expect, again like the previous film. One of these elements is Mendoza's problem. It's quite usual in a film of this calibre that the male authority figure has a sexual dysfunction, which usually involves him taking it out on the female prisoners in ways other than sexual. This is also present in the film, but to a much more developed and extended degree. In this example, Mendoza is seemingly unable to maintain an erection, or when he does, he fails to reach climax. His wife Loba, though, is uncharacteristically understanding, and seems to love him deeply, enough to indulge in his awkward needs when it comes to his sexual proclivities. She engages herself in lesbian behaviour to entice him, and then allows him to screw prisoners in front of her so that he can build up his stamina and finish with her. The overarching plot, though, is that they're trying to conceive, but Mendoza frequently fails, causing Loba to frustratingly sell the girls into prostitution to the flamboyantly Camp Lucas via Mario. This all reaches a point to one of the more memorable scenes in which Loba uses Mercedes as the experimental receptive partner and adds a rampaging dog into the mix as the active partner. This spectacle of bestiality apparently arouses Mendoza enough to reach his full conclusion with Loba, and then all is apparently well. It's a pretty grim scene by all standards, really, but thankfully, it's not really explicit at all. In fact, it actually looks like the dog is just incredibly friendly and merely jumping on the actress. There's nothing really shown, it's just more implied than anything else. Still quite nasty, of course, but it's merely another notch on the film's rather hysterical laundry list of obscenities such as Magda and Mendoza sadistically hunting down a female prisoner who doesn't want to indulge in Mendoza's sexual games, in a manner that would be done quite similarly in the Ozploitation film the next year, Turkey Shoot. Another element which is rather atypical for the genre is the whole subplot of a prostitution ring being ran by an over-the-top gay man, played by none other than director Jess Franco himself. This aspect takes up quite a significant chunk of the film, and it's just as ludicrous as the rest of the plot, especially in the sheer brazenness of it. Not many places could get away with selling so many women to a small hut on the docks and not attract attention by the police. But then again, why am I trying to reason with this sort of movie? This is the same film where a girl is imprisoned for life after being caught smoking a joint, which apparently equates to drug pushing and trafficking. Everything seems so out of proportion that the reality on camera seems like a distant world. The prices of the girls when being discussed seem quite cheap when it comes to sex slaves, but the character of Mario seems to think that he's being overcharged, and muses that he could buy a 12-year-old for $7,000. I mean, really? Another scene involves near-gladiatorial combat when the feisty Mercedes insults a guard called Juna and gets a nasty pin shoved into her nipple as a punishment. This bit really did make me squirm, but the subsequent scene involves Juna and Mercedes battling it out old warrior style with a knife and spear, fighting against the azure setting sun whilst watched on enthusiastically by Magda and Mendoza. This scene is clearly aesthetically pleasing for all sorts of audiences, but the scene in itself is also rather entertaining, mainly due to the fact that you really do want Juna to die. 
Even the guards in this film are half-naked. But quite oddly, except for Magda, very little of the female guards actually perpetrate anything sexual towards the prisoners. The rule-breaker in this regard is actually Juna, who abuses her position to flirt with Mercedes, only to get negative feedback. This then escalates, of course, into the heterosexual male's favourite thing ever, the catfight. Though it looks like actually they're more rolling around aimlessly without actually pulling any punches. With these scenes out of the way, the story in Sadomania really doesn't expand beyond anything other than Olga's escape. It takes an unusually leaden pace as well to get to this plot point, as Michael disappears in the beginning and then doesn't turn up again until way over an hour into the film. I mean, your wife's been essentially kidnapped, so why would you not phone the police immediately and get the cavalry back within half an hour? As a result of the lack of attention to the main narrative and laboriously fixating on a multitude of subplots, the film feels quite boring and slow in lots of areas. But thankfully, the aforementioned silliness and the exaggerated moments do pepper the film enough to at least make it funny on occasion. As the plot is nothing to really write home about, do we at least have interesting characters? Well, unfortunately not really. The standout character for me is Magda, played by Ajita Wilson, who is at least confident enough in her sass and sadism to be endearing to watch. She struts about and demands order, and is genuinely compelling to watch on screen. And she does have the most curious riding crop that I've ever seen. It actually looks like it's made of rattlesnake tails. Olga, though, falls really flat for me. She barely says anything, doesn't really do much, and the only two things I remember her saying or doing are completely contradictory. In one scene, she says disparagingly to her lesbian cellmate Miriam that she wouldn't go with her if she was the last person on Earth. A few scenes later, and they're practically sharing their pubic hair. Inspired by... nothing, really. Olga's just suddenly changed her tune. Mercedes is thrust into the story halfway through, and then sort of sticks around like a bad smell without much to really do except be pleasured by a canine. The more compelling of the female prisoners, though, is Tara, as she seems to be so doe-like and innocent. Of course, we find out that she is technically innocent, but it's her posture, her gait and her eyes that make her so interesting. She genuinely feels vulnerable and mesmerising to watch, though the script doesn't really give her any material to play around with. And she's kind of thrown away too, dying from an infected bite on her breast. The oddly goes gangrenous within hours or something. Pity really, as the rest of the cast don't really do much either. Mendoza, played by Franco regular Antonio Mayans, is adequate in his role, though the fake moustache is rather humorous to behold. Loba looks like she might have been a more sympathetic character to begin with, but she quickly shows her true colours with her habits of selling women to piggish louts at the docks. Lucas, played by Franco, is also simply around to look daft and get bummed from behind by his lover, who interestingly was played by Ajita Wilson, with her hair pulled back and a fake moustache added. Clearly, Franco wasn't comfortable with a naked man pretending to give him one from behind, so ultimately it's all a bit awash even with the characters. Like the previous film, Sadomania at least accomplishes the outrage and the requisite shocks to keep you interested. While the film looks pretty on occasion, and it has enough surprises to entertain, it's a miracle that these elements do exist in what would otherwise be a bit of a drag of a film. Main girl Olga was played by Uta Kopke, but she seemingly starred in only one other production, a 1980s German film called Three Swedes on the Reeperbahn. Sadistic prison wardress Magda was played by Ajita Wilson, whom we encountered in our last episode in Hotel Paradise, and she was also previously in Fulci's Contraband as well. 
Tara was played by German model Ursula Buchfellner, who'd been the main damsel in distress in Franco's video nasty Devil Hunter. Andrea Guzon, who plays Mercedes, cropped up in Conan the Barbarian, funnily enough, in a small bit role, whilst Antonio Mayans, who played Mendoza, was a Spanish stalwart who'd been in tons of Jess Franco's stuff. We've already seen him in Diamonds of Kilimanjaro, but he had no less than six video nasty appearances. He was in Cannibal, Cannibal Terror, Devil Hunter, Nightmare City, Zombie Lake, and Oasis of the Zombies. Otto Renzer, who plays the gross Mario, is also a Franco-recognisable, having appeared in the video nasty Bloody Moon. But that's pretty much it for the cast. It was a rather low-budget feature, and the casts were mostly one-offs. Jess Franco himself, the director, doesn't really require an introduction, as we've covered him before, when we did Diamonds of Kilimanjaro. He was one of the most prolific directors of his time, knocking out movies left, right and centre, and he had no less than six video nasty entries, including Cannibal, Devil Hunter, Bloody Moon, Oasis of the Zombies, The Demons and The Erotic Rites of Frankenstein. Franco, of course, wasn't averse to getting his hands dirty though, so on Sadomania he also provided the music and edited the film, while assisted by his life partner Lena Romay. Ramey also helped direct the film, and the pair would come to be known as a lifelong team for most of their professional career. Coming back to the music, though, for a second, there's actually excerpts here from Franco's slasher film Bloody Moon, as well as the Eurocine film Zombie Lake, which Franco apparently helped write. Franco also co-wrote the film with Gunter Ebert, who'd worked on 1970's Dorian Gray and 1969's House of Pleasure. The film was produced by Julio Parra, who was mainly a production supervisor on films like the original Django in 1966 and 1975's Evil Eye. Jess Franco's cinematographer of choice, Juan Soler, was also present on this film in the same capacity. He'd worked on most of his nasties as well, like Bloody Moon, Cannibal and Devil Hunter. Finally, the makeup effects were done by Elisenda Villanueva, who worked on Daughter of Dracula and Virgin Among the Living Dead, as well as the very disturbing In a Glass Cage from 1986. Sadomania premiered in West Germany in March of 1981 under the title Holler de Lust, which roughly means Hell of Lust. It was then released in Spain and France before coming out in the UK cinemas as Prisoners of the Flesh. In this version, however, a pre-cut version was submitted, which ran around 77 minutes, which already had around 20 minutes removed, but it was further cut of 17 minutes, leaving the total running time a mere 60 minutes long. It didn't make it onto VHS afterwards, presumably because in such a drastically censored version being shown previously, no one really would have been interested anyway. It was submitted again for certification in 1994 for a VHS from Redemption, but it was outright rejected. The British public wouldn't see this film again until 2005, when Anchor Bay submitted the full version. It did get cut, however, by 17 seconds to the scene of Mercedes having her nipple stabbed by the needle. So this is the most complete version available at the moment. But you can import it from overseas, from the US, or from European markets.
Well, that's that for this week, chaps. I hope you haven't been overloaded too much with women in prison by now. It's the last time we'll be covering that subject anyway, as we're moving on to something different next time. Next week on the Nasty Pasty podcast, we're covering zombie rip-offs. Two films that heavily rip off another more successful zombie film. We'll be talking about Andrea Bianchi's Burial Ground, which rips heavily on both zombie flesh eaters and Tombs of the Blind Dead, while the other film, Flesh Eater, also known as Zombie Nosh, liberally steals from Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Join us next week then, folks, and until when, you know where you can find me. You can find me on social media like Twitter and Facebook. Just search for Nasty Pasty. Take care now. (laughs) 